Well, praise God, this morning we're going to go ahead and continue the series in the book of Romans. And uh, this is going to be a long one. Still got, I think, probably four or five more to go. There's 16 chapters in the book of Romans. I think maybe next week or the week after we'll do a, a quick reprieve and I'll preach something else and then we'll get back into it. But uh, how, how have you guys been enjoying it so far? It's been a, been a good one. You guys enjoying the book of Romans? It's like the gospel in a nutshell. I really have been enjoying it, especially as I, you know, it, people look at the pastor and think that we got all figured out we know everything and but the truth is that even as I prepare this stuff I'm always getting more and more every time and and having the opportunity to prepare these messages actually just I just I gleam so much for it and uh, I hope to pass some of that on to you guys but last week we were looking at uh, the divine sovereignty of God if you remember we were talking about uh, Paul was basically saying that listen man doesn't get to decide who God extends salvation to. The truth is that if God wants to extend salvation to the, to the Gentiles, it's not man's choice to say yes or no, and the Jews can't get upset because it's always been his choice who he chooses, who he extends it to. And, and I thank God that now salvation is not just extended to the, to the Jews, but it's, it's extended to all of us. God has made the choice to extend salvation to all of us. But the truth is that we're going to see today that man still does have a choice. Now, we don't get a choice of who God's going to extend salvation to, but we all make the choice to receive the salvation that's been extended to us. We can either choose to reject Jesus or we can choose to accept him. We can be obedient to the gospel or we can just disregard it and put it by the wayside. And, you know, the reasons for turning away from the gospel are many. You know, and, and when you talk to people, there's always something. People, oh, I don't want to change. I, my life is too good right now. I don't want to stop doing the things I'm doing. Or maybe they've been told that there is no God, and this is just something silly to believe in. But there's always, there's always a, uh, a multitude of reasons why people don't want to accept the gospel. They don't want to accept Jesus into their heart. And, and this chapter, Paul is going to deal primarily with the, Jew, the Jews and why they rejected Jesus. And, and in this case... You know, the, the Jews believed in God. They knew who God was, but they rejected Jesus because they thought he was, he was blasphemous. Even though they had all the information showing that Jesus was from God and this was the plan, they thought they had it all figured out. So the first scripture we're going to look at this morning is Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. And once again, Paul speaking to the Jews, and I always look at Paul because... You've got to imagine this guy, he has such a heart for his countrymen, but they're constantly trying to kill him. They're const- I mean, it's, to ha- still have this kind of heart for somebody, they're constantly they're trying to throw you in jail, they're trying to beat you, they're trying to have you executed. They're, I mean, ultimately, they ended up making where he has to, to seek refuge in a, in a Roman prison so he can appeal to Caesar so that he can not be killed by the Jews. Now, how many of us are thinking that, st- I mean, it's, it's easy to, to say we love everybody that we don't know, but how about people that are actually physically trying to hurt you, people that are, have it out against you? I mean, are you praying for those people? Are you, are you, do you have a heart for them? I mean, Paul is an, an excellent example of, of how we're to be. But he goes on to say, For I testify, 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 first verse, and I'm already messing up. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, zeal is not a bad thing. You know, zeal is not a bad thing. It's a, a passion for God. And the Jews, they, they had passion galore. They had zeal galore. 
The problem was is that it was pointed in the right direction. You know, you can be passionate about something and it's not good for you because it's not something you should be passionate about. So the problem was is that they, they had a zeal for God. They loved God. But it says not in accordance with knowledge. Basically, not in accordance with the Word. They had, they had taken the Word and they had twisted it just enough thinking that they could establish their own righteousness. It says not knowing about God's righteousness, which is the righteousness given through Jesus Christ. It's actually God's own righteousness uh, imparted onto us, given to us. They didn't know about that. They were establishing to seek their own. They were trying to live that life. As we've talked about all through the law, they were trying to, to meet it on their own. They were trying to do the right thing. And they figured if they could just follow the law perfectly, then, then they would be righteous. And truthfully, salvation to them, they didn't even know they needed to be saved. Salvation to them was, was there just because they were a Jew. And as long as they had a zeal for the law and they kept the covenants, they were automatically in. You know, it's tough to accept salvation when you don't even know you need saving. You know, there's some people out there that think that they got it all figured out. They're not ready to receive the Lord because they figure they can do it on their own, just like the Jews did at this very time. You know, and Jesus also preached the very same idea that the Jews were ignorant of needing to be saved. This isn't something that Paul just made up, but, but listen to this in Luke chapter 18. Verses 9 through 14, Jesus says, or it says this, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the truth is, is just like these two guys, the Jew went up there and he thought he could do it himself. He said, God, let me tell you how good I am. Look at all these things that I've done. He says, you know what, I've never, I've never sinned. I'm, I'm not like this tax collector right here. But Jesus said, you know what, the tax collector is the one who is actually going to go home justified, righteous, saved. Because he's saying, basically he's saying, God, I can't do this on my own. Please help me. Have mercy on me. And that's what we do in Jesus. We come to Jesus saying, you know what, we can't do this on our own. Jesus, make me a new person. You know, this, this uh, idea wasn't just for this one Jew, but it was the, the whole Jewish na as a nation at the time were very prideful in, in who they were, that God picked them. And, and, and ultimately, they began to, to add traditions and actually even upheld their traditions higher than they, or as equal to the laws. They tried to do things right for God. And that's why they had such a problem, because Jesus actually was born a Jew. He came through the Jewish people. He came to them first. He preached to the Jews first. You remember that uh, uh, the the story of the of the Gentile woman that comes up and she says her daughter's possessed and she says, you know what, go away, woman. I've, why, I can't go. I can't come to you. I can't give the, the the food, the children's food, to the dogs. And she says, well, even the crumbs fall to the ground for the dogs sometimes. And he says, go. Your faith has made her well. You know, even Jesus, when he first came, he was not preaching to the Gentiles. Now, this woman's faith was great, so he granted her wish. But the truth is that Jesus came to the Jews first. 
They were the chosen people, and they rejected him even still. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. You know, the Jews had everything that they needed to tell them that he was coming, that he was there for them. And, you know, we, we can look from the outside looking, and it's easy to come up here and preach this and say this. We look with, you know, 2020 hindsight vision and saying, man, what were they thinking? But I look, I mean, Paul did the same thing until, I mean, Paul had an experience with God on the road to Damascus, but he was in the same boat as all the Jews. He knew where they were coming from. But the Jews, even though they had this zeal, this misplaced zeal, they still didn't know God's righteousness and they were attempting to establish their own. But then we find out that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, this that Christ is the end of the law doesn't necessarily mean that Christ is doing away with the laws. We've already learned that Christ didn't do away with the law. But he was the, it might be better worded as he was the end point or the culmination of the law. He was actually the, what kind of buttoned up the law there at the end. The law can never provide righteousness. And that's what the Jews were using to try to get theirs. But it was only a roadmap of what was required. However, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. He lived it according to the law. And then he paid the price that was owed by all of us, making us right with God. To everyone who believes. And we talk about the law being fulfilled in Jesus. In Matthew 5, 17, 20, it says, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, Jewish teachers at the time, they taught that to abolish the law was actually to, to disobey. You abolish the law by disobeying it. Because by doing so, it wasn't so much that you were sinning per se, but you were rejecting the law's authority. And somebody who rejected the law was worthy of being excommunicated by the Jewish community. That was enough to get you kicked out if you were going to reject the law. So think about what this means for Paul as he is telling them and saying that the, that the, the law is to be done away with. The law has been fulfilled. I mean, Paul, as a Jew, is going to all these Jews and trying to tell them to, to in essence to put away the law because Jesus has fulfilled it. And that was enough to get them kicked out, of, kicked out of the community, the Jewish community. So this is tough for Paul to be doing, and it's actually a tough thing for the, for the Jews to get a hold of. You know, it's Like I said, sometimes it's easy for us to, from the outside looking in, to not really relate to what they're going through. But, but you've got to look at it. It's fighting against everything that they've been, been taught. Unfortunately, they've been mistaught, but it's fighting against everything they've been taught. And what we find is that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He didn't come to reject the law, but he came to, to fulfill it. And, what, and we see that not only in his life, because we know that he was born under the law. Uh, Galatians 4.4 4 says, But then when the fullness of time comes, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the law. And then he and his parents did everything while he was growing up to fulfill the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day like he was supposed to. He went to the temple like he was supposed to. He did everything according to the law. So as he was living, he was actually fulfilling the law. And we know that he lived a perfect sinless life because 
we never see anyone ever accuse Jesus of sin. Not in the Bible, not in uh, secular writings. Nobody ever accuses Jesus of sinning. He lived a perfect and righteous life. And then we also know that in Matthew 3.17, it says, And behold, the voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus fulfilled the law in his life. But however, it's his death and resurrection that ultimately fulfilled the law. Because he took on the curse of the law according to Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then he made the final sacrifice that was required by the law. Not only to become the curse for us, but in Hebrews 10.26 it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And I won't spend too much time on this verse. It's oftentimes misunderstood. It doesn't mean that if you sin after you get saved, there's nothing you can do. What it means is that if you get saved and then turn away from Jesus and you continue sinning willfully, that there's nothing else that you can do. There's no longer a sacrifice for sins because Jesus was the final sacrifice. That's your choice. You either have nothing or you accept Jesus. You can't do whatever you want. You can't still follow the law and continue to have animal sacrifices because he was the final sacrifice. But that's how Jesus fulfilled the law. Everything, he became the curse for us. And then on top of that, everything that was required of the law, our sin, our, our death and our punishment, he took on himself as well. And all we have left to do is accept the free gift of God and his son. And we receive the same forgiveness, the same righteousness that Jesus himself had. In Romans 10, 5 through 9, it says, For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, as Paul writes this, he says, For Moses writes that a man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. The Jews' first response would have been, But hey, we practice that righteousness. But the problem is, as Paul goes on to show through the rest of the scriptures, is they missed it. They, they, it's not practicing the law that makes you righteous, but it's a, it's a change of your heart that makes you righteous. If righteousness were obtained by our doing, by our goodness, then we'd be able to boast to God in our achievement. Like when Jesus was talking about that, that, that prayer, he was saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these persons. I do all these things. He was boasting to God by how good he was done. We know that that's not how it works. It's so that no man can boast. God gave it as a gift. And then here we go on to read, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Now, we'll take a little time and dig into this. And we have to start back in Deuteronomy 36 through 14, which is actually where Paul is quoting for this, to get an idea of what Paul's trying to explain here, what he's trying to say. In Deuteronomy 36 through 14, it says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who have persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I commanded you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book, 
of the laws. If you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. Have you noticed how many times it mentioned heart? There's, a, there's an attitude of faith that's involved in this, turning to God with your heart. It says, for this commandment which I command you today is, too, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. Somehow I just jumped to the very end of my notes. Give me a second. Sorry, guys. <laughs> there we go. It is not out of reach. It is not heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it, for us to make us hear it, that we may observe it. Does that sound familiar? We do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven. And he says, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, we will cross the sea for us to get it, for us to make us hear it, that we may observe it. That's this part he's quoting here. Who will descend into the abyss or who will descend into the Red Sea to cross it? But then he says, but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. Which is the exact thing that he's quoting right here. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. See, what was happening is Moses was speaking to the people and he he gave them, as I began there in the beginning, this word, this message from God that said that if you obey me and keep my my commandments and love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind, if 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 you love me from your heart with an attitude of faith, then all these things, these blessings will be added to you. But, but he says to him, Moses says to them, he says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you. This is verse 11, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. What Moses was saying is that, hey, you don't have to send somebody to heaven to pull the word down so you can have it. And you don't have to send somebody into the abyss, into the sea, to bring the word to you so you can have it. But this word that I give to you is already with you. It's already near you. It's in your heart and it's in your mind, just like he's quoting here. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. This word is already there. And Paul is saying that the gospel is exactly the same way. You know, we don't have to do anything. We don't have to achieve anything to get the gospel. We don't have to go up into heaven to pull Christ down so that we can have the gospel and have salvation. We don't have to go into the abyss and pull Christ up so that we can have salvation. But it's already with us. The word is near us. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart. The truth is that Jesus came down out of heaven out of his own accord. And he passed down into hell and rose again of his own accord. And we don't have to. We don't have to do any of those things, pull them out or any of that stuff, but it's already here for us. And he says, this is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, because the word is near you in your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that's in your heart believing, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The truth is that it takes both. It takes confessing with your mouth and believing with your heart. One without the other is really worth anything. It's worth nothing. If you only confess, but you don't believe, you just have empty words. And if you only believe, but you never confess that Christ is Lord, you have to question, do you really believe that? If you believe that, you would tell somebody. You You would speak it out loud. The thing is, though, salvation is such an incredibly incomplicated and easy thing, but we always try to complicate it by seeing what we can add to it. What can we do to improve on what Christ already did? Can I feel guilty enough for the sins I've committed? Do I have to do all these things? But the truth is, it's easy. We just confess with our mouths that Christ is Lord. And this is Christ is my Lord, not the Lord. The truth is that... uh, uh, believing in God is not enough. The Bible says uh, that uh, the demons believe 
and are afraid, but that's not enough. Believing that there's a God is not enough. It's confessing that Christ is your Lord, not just the Lord, but your Lord and Savior. And that He was the Son of God and He rose again. Amen? Romans 10, 10 through 10-13 says, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Belief comes from the heart, and ultimately confessing is a manifestation of that belief. If you believe that God is who He says He is, and He did what He said He did, then you're going to tell people, you're not afraid to come up and say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. And the truth is, these aren't steps you don't believe and then confess. This is all at the same time. These two steps happen at the same time, resulting in your salvation. And I thank God that the Bible says that believing in Him guarantees that we won't be disappointed. And while this means, it does mean that one day we'll be in heaven, we'll be sitting with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and we won't be disappointed then, but it, I believe it also means that we're not going to be disappointed now. We can have a little bit of heaven on earth right now. As we trust in God and we, we believe in His promises, we're not disappointed if we put our trust in Jesus. Amen? David said that, uh, I am old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken. And I thank God that's the same for us today. It says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. You know, as we read the earlier chapters of the book of Romans, we found that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek when it comes to sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth is, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, Gentile, it doesn't, you know, man, woman, slave, rich person, we've all fallen short. But as the same is true that all of us are the same under sin, salvation is the same for all of us as well. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. And the question you have to ask for us is, is salvation for me? Does, does God love me? You just have to ask, am I, a, am I one of the whosoevers? Am I a whosoever? And I think you are. Verse 13 is a quote from Joel. Joel 2.32 says, And it will come about, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors from the Lord from whom the Lord calls. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And what he's saying there, to call on the name of the Lord means to pray in faith for salvation. To trust God, to believe God for salvation. That's what calling on the name of the Lord means. And I thank God that it's available to all of us. Amen? So let me show you a little table. I borrowed this from one of the commentaries that I was reading. Uh, what was it called? Just so I can be, be nice here. Borrowed from the Bible and all its commentary. And it's the law based on righteousness, the, the righteousness based on the law, and righteousness based on faith. And it's kind of a comparison and contrast. So for the law, righteousness based, the righteousness based on the law was only for the Jew, but righteousness based on faith was for whosoever, it's for all of us. It was based on works under the law, but now it comes by faith alone. It was self-righteousness under the law because it was what you could do for yourself, but now it's God's righteousness given to us. It's not based on anything we do, but it's based on God's righteousness given freely to us. We have the same righteousness God has because of his gift. Righteousness based on the law could never save because 
it didn't change who you were on the inside. It didn't make a difference. It just gave you what a list of steps you had to follow. Don't they know it's church time? <laughs> Praise God. All right, guess we'll have to turn off the house phone during church. It's amazing. We've been here nine months, and that's not happened once. I must have been ready to preach something good right now. The devil's having a go. Praise God. The law, <laughs> the law based, or the righteousness based on the law cannot save because it doesn't make a change. But righteousness based on faith brings salvation because it's actually a change of who you are. You're given a brand new spirit inside of you. For the righteousness based on the law, it was all about obeying the law, obeying the Lord. But now it's we call on the Lord for salvation. And finally, righteousness based on the law can only lead to pride because it's, it's all we can say is, look at how good I did. Hey God, look at me, I'm pretty cool, huh? But righteousness based on faith glorifies God because it gives, it gives praise to Him because it was by His works, not by our own, that makes us righteousness. We didn't make ourselves right with God, but He made us right with Him. Amen. In Romans 10, 14 through 15, it says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him? in whom they have not heard. How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. See, previously, the, the Jewish people rejected the righteousness from God. They rejected Jesus. They, re, they rejected salvation. And Paul's already shown that they've, they've done that. But the question is, what, what is left for them? What shall we do, those that, uh, that didn't have salvation? And Paul says, you know what? For the Jews and for the Gentiles who are lost, there's a solution. And that solution is to, to believe. And here's where we go and begin to look at the whole purpose of the church, and that's to preach the gospel. That is to, to go out and, and give people the opportunity to hear, the opportunity to believe. You know, when we go out and preach the gospel, we go out and make an impact in people's lives, we think that, that maybe we're just touching one person. And that's true, that that's, good, that's a good thing when we can touch one person's life. But we, we never may under, understand the, the impact that we're actually having. So let me read you a story about the impact of just one child being one to God. It says, winning a child to Christ is, of course, infinitely valuable in itself, but sometimes we are winning even more, as the following story shows. <laughs> Edward Kimball, a shoe shop assistant and a Sunday school teacher in Chicago, loved boys. He spent hours of his free time visiting the young street urchins in Chicago's inner city, trying to win them for Christ. Through him, a young boy named D.L. Moody got saved in 1858. Moody grew up to be a preacher. In 1879, Moody won to the Lord, a young man by the name of F.B. Meyer, who also grew up to be a preacher. Meyer won a young man by the name of J.W. Chapman to Christ. Chapman, in turn, grew up to be a preacher and brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. As an athlete evangelist, Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina that was so successful that another evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach. It was while Ham was preaching that a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus. You know, Billy Graham's ministry, who we see as, as a massive ministry today, was all started years and years before by one man deciding to win a child to the lost. 
We'll never know the impact that we can make by, by preaching the gospel, by sharing the gospel and having one person saved. So we have here a, a roadmap, if you will, of, of how that comes along. First off, we find out that they have not believed, so they must believe something. And what must they believe? That Jesus was the Son of God, that He was crucified and died for the sin, that He was raised again so that they would have newness of life, and that His sacrifice was enough. But they'll never have the opportunity to believe if they don't hear. And they'll never have the opportunity to hear if they're not preached to by somebody. You know, the funny thing is here is we read this and, and y'all, you guys are all going, oh good, I'm not a pastor, that doesn't include me. But the truth is that, that this word preach here is the Greek word kariso, and, and to preach is actually, it, it really means to be a herald or to announce. It's not limited to proclamation for a pulpit, it's not limited to the pastor. You know, you don't have to be a pastor to preach the gospel. And the gospel is just the good news. You can, pre- you can preach to your friends and your neighbors. You can even preach to yourself. And I'd recommend that from time to time. Because sometimes you need to preach to yourself. You know, that this, this is the process of how someone has the opportunity to believe. They have the opportunity to hear and believe. And you notice we have, we have two things going on here. One, we have the preacher. We have the one person that's, that's preaching. The one that's actually doing the, uh, the, the giving of the gospel. But we also find here that they have to be sent. You know, those two parts, you know, you may not always be the one preaching. But if you're not the one going, you should definitely be the one sending. And if you can't send, maybe you should go. The truth is that we all have a responsibility to the lost of this world, that they would have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And then finally in this verse it says, Just it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And all this is is a fancy way to say that your message is a welcome message. Even, even though there's going to be times when people don't act like that they want to receive what you have to offer, the truth is that whether they realize it or not, it's something that they need. And truthfully, it's something that they want. They just don't realize it. Your message is a welcome message for those around you. Matthew 28 through 28, 16 through 20, this is, as we all know, the Great Commission. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, it wasn't until uh, not that many years ago that a Christian, the Christian church didn't even believe in evangelizing. They didn't believe in making disciples. William Carey is the man that's considered the father of modern missions. And when he first tried to convince his fellow Baptists that the Great Commission required them not just the earthly disciples to go out into all the world and make disciples, when he says he required them, not just the, the Bible disciples, he was met with fierce resistance. At one meeting, an older pastor interrupted Carey's impassioned pleas and says, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. He says, So anxious was this man to protect the sovereignty of God that he failed to appreciate one fact repeated time and time again throughout the history of the church. When God pleases to do anything on earth, he uses your aid and mine. He uses people. And this is, uh, I forget the exact, ler- the, exact ler- the exact verse, but Paul says that, uh, 
that we make up where Christ was lacking. And the only thing Christ was lacking in was, was his ability to preach the gospel. That's our responsibility is to preach the gospel. You know, this, this man, William Carey, is the one who's the father of modern missions. He, he, he took a stand and, and began to, to live for God. And because of it now, we actually, as a, as a church, as a whole, we actually evangelize, we preach to the lost. Because the truth is, God uses us to reach those around us. And this is not just a good, say, a good suggestion to go into the world and make disciples. It's a commandment. This is the central focus of all that we do at this church. We want to win the loss. It is for this reason that we do our monthly outreaches. It's for this reason that we had our harvest festival out front. And it's going to be for this reason that we're going to plan and execute at least four major outreaches this year in addition to our monthly outreach where we go out and hand out flyers and and we're probably going to start trying a few different things there. But the ultimate goal of everything we do is to reach more people for Jesus. And we're not trying to, to grow in this church just for growth's sake. Growth in this body, more people in this body, ultimately means that more people are going to get a chance to come home and meet Jesus, to, to come to Jesus. Our sphere of influence grows with every new person in this church. It means that we're going to have more resources, and that doesn't just mean money. You know, a lot of times we talk about resources, we just think, oh, more people, more money. But the truth is, that means that there's going to be more people and more time. You know, it's, it's easy to give money to a church. You know what's hard? Getting up on a Saturday morning and going around and handing out flyers. As we grow, we're going to have a greater sphere of influence. We can reach more people. And truthfully, you know, we're not out to just make converts. Anybody that's come to this church knows that I'm not, I'm not just hoping to see you on Sunday morning. Because we're not trying to make converts. We're looking to make disciples. People that are willing to invest in the kingdom of heaven more than just show up on a Sunday. Amen? Romans 10, 16-17 says, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, verse 16 quotes from Isaiah 53. And just as in the Old Testament, the Jews now were not accepting or heeding the report. The good news of the gospel is the report that they had now. John 12, 36-38 says, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and went away and hid himself from from them, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was fulfilled the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The truth is that God showed him. Jesus came and he showed himself to the Jews. All throughout the Old Testament, the scripture points to Jesus. And they didn't believe the report. They turned away, they, they rejected Jesus. And the truth is, is, it's not God's fault when people reject Jesus. Just like it's not your fault if you begin to preach to somebody and they reject Jesus. The fault lies solely with the people that reject Him. An unbeliever once ridiculed the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying, if Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost, why is it that there are so many unbelievers? And the Christian to whom he was speaking stopped a very dirty little boy who was passing by and turned to the unbeliever and said, can you, blame and, can you blame soap and water for the filth of this boy? You know, it's not the soap's fault that he didn't wash with it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like blaming the mechanic down the street for your car being broken just because he has the ability to fix it. You didn't go to the mechanic. If you don't accept what is offered, then it's your choice. Not our, you know, the, I've entitled this message, The Decisions of Man, because ultimately... 
Salvation is our choice. Do we receive what God has to offer? Did you know that nobody's going to hell for sin today? The reason they go to hell is because they haven't accepted the free gift of salvation for Jesus Christ. Sin's been dealt with. Jesus paid the price. The question is, do we receive that free gift or do we reject it? And we also find that, that hearing comes, uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Just like we saw last, last verse, it says, how will, they hear, how will they believe if they don't hear? The truth is, this is why when I preach, I use so many scriptures. Every, every, every slide I use almost is a scripture, and I use scripture even in between the slides as I begin to read stuff to you, because the truth is, unless I'm preaching the word of God, faith is not going to grow inside your hearts. If I stand up here and just tell stories, while I do use stories and analogies, they help to, to break up the, the monotony and, and keep you guys awake, I hope, and they, they help to break things up. But the truth is, it's, it's God's word that's building faith in your heart. And the same goes as, as my testimony or even your testimony when you speak to somebody. Your testimony will not save anybody, will not build faith in anybody. It can inspire people to hear the Word of God and have their faith grown. It can inspire people to actually sit down and have a listen to what you have to say. But our testimony, our words will never grow faith. It's actually the Word of God that does so. And that's why you hear so many scriptures when I preach because I figure God's going to do it a whole lot better than I am. In Acts, and you'll find that this is the same pattern all throughout the New Testament. And this is just a couple of examples here. In Acts 16, 14 through 15, it says, A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she, had heard her house, when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. See, the first thing we notice is that Lydia was a worshiper of God. She believed in God. But before this point, she was not saved. You know, you can go to church your entire life and not be saved. You can hear the good news of the gospel. You can hear it your whole life. But unless you take a hold of it by faith in your heart and, and receive the free gift of salvation from God and believe that he died and rose again for us to give us a new life and that he is your Lord and Savior, then then it's all for naught. It's just empty words that rattled around in your head. But believing is always accompanied by hearing. She was a worshiper of God, and she was listening to Paul preach. And how many of you know that, that Paul preached with the Word of God? I mean, as we look through all these scriptures, how many times have I said, this is where Paul was quoting, this is where Paul was quoting, this is where Paul was quoting. And then we find out later, uh, Peter says that uh, Paul, Peter equates Paul's words to Scripture, which is why we use Paul's words to Scripture when we preach. I often wonder is, is how different would things have been if, if Paul would have continued on in unbelief instead of, instead of receiving what Jesus had to say on that road in Damascus. You know, Paul wasn't preaching to his fellow Jews from a position of ignorance. He, didn't under, he, he wasn't, in a lot of ways, we look at this and we don't quite understand what the Jews were going through. We can't relate because we've never dealt with what they were dealing with. But, but Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He was, he was top of the top as one of them. And he knew what they were going through. And he knew what they had to, what the old traditions they had to, to put away so that they could get a hold of the gospel. He had already done the same thing. And as hard as it was for the Jews, it was just as hard for Paul to make these decisions. And I wonder, how different would things have been? 
And then we have Paul and Silas. This, this one right here in uh, 16, 28 through 33, it says, But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, and you, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour and that night, and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. This was a story, do you remember, Paul was in prison with Silas. And this is an amazing story because Paul's in prison and, and unlike all of us who would probably in there just be whining and crying, God, how can this be and why are you doing to this? Why are you doing this to us? And he was just in there praying and singing. Him and Silas praying to God and singing hymns. And while they were doing that, an earthquake comes and all the doors bust open. The jailer wakes up and goes, oh no, everyone's going to be away. And he's getting ready to kill himself because they were going to kill him anyway if all his prisoners got away. And uh, they say, hey, no, don't kill yourself. And he's touched by this. He sees this experience, and he's touched and realizes something's going on here. But how many know that that's not enough for him to be saved? That's not enough for him to have faith. He says, but what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Which is good. Now he knows what he has to do. But how many know it doesn't say right next to that, then he believed? No, what it says is, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So after that, Paul and Silas began to preach to him in his household. And I thank God that after they all heard, they all believed, because it says here that he and all his household were believed, believed and were baptized. You know, the, the same thing happens up here, is that she and her whole household were listening to Paul, and they were, they were baptized. But the truth is that in order for people to have the opportunity to believe, they have to be able to hear the word of gospel preached. In Romans 10, 18 through 21, Paul's continuing to talk about the Jews here. He says, but surely, but I say surely, they have never heard, have they? Indeed they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their word to the ends of the world. But I say surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which was not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So Paul, in his usual style, is like, you know what, I'm going to head off the arguments before they even start. So the first argument is what? But surely I say that they have never heard, have they? The Jews, the Jews they didn't have the opportunity to believe because they've never heard, right? And Paul says, no. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And Paul is quoting from Psalms 19.4 here. But he also says it like this in Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness and men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. The whole point of this here is saying that, that they have, or the Jews have heard, because it's, it's written in the world around You can't look around the world around us and see that God is at work, that God's not moving. In the beginning of in Romans, Romans chapter 1, he says that they are without excuse. You can't look around and say that there is no God, that there's not something going on. Paul's saying that Jews have heard because it's written in the trees and the stars and the, the earth. So he goes, okay, so 
We see that the Jews have heard, but maybe they've heard, but they don't understand. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? They heard, but maybe they just didn't understand. But he goes on to show with Scripture that not only did they, did they hear and understand, but the Scripture goes on to show, how, to show that they would actually reject him. They begin to show that he would reject them. The truth is, the Jews had every reason to believe and understand, but they chose to reject the Messiah. This Scripture here, he's, he's quoting the Old Testament, says that, by that which is not a nation, the Gentiles, and a nation without understanding, continuing to say the Gentiles, I will anger you. He's saying, you know what, I am going to do this. I'm going to, to extend salvation to the Gentiles and hopefully provoke you to jealousy that you'll come back to me. Because he says, I was found by those who were not seeking me and became manifest those who did not ask for me. Paul goes to show in Scripture that, hey, you guys, not only did you guys know, but you understood. The Scripture testifies to Jesus all throughout it. But then we find that even with all their stubbornness, all their problems, Jesus continues to stretch out his hand to them. He stretches out his hand in patience. And I thank God that, that God is no respecter of persons because he does the same for all of us. When we're being stubborn, when we're rejecting him, he stands there in patience for us. <clears throat> Luke 13 through 34 says, oh, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Like I said, even with all their stubbornness, God is always reaching out to them. He wants to pull them in. And the same with us. But the picture of this, this scripture here is that of a feathered wing. As, it, as, as like a mother hen begins to pull her chicks in with a feathered wing. How many know oh, a feathered wing stretched out is not solid? You can push your fingers in between the feathers. And God's the same way. He wants to, to pull us in. But the problem is there are so many of us that push back through that wing and run away. If we would, if we would come in and stay next to God, we'd be protected and kept warm in this, this loving, tender embrace from God. But the Jews then, and so many times us as well, push through and don't want to be pulled in by God. We want to do our own thing. And then finally, we're going to look at Revelations 3.20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. The truth is that salvation is an incredibly simple thing. But the problem is that sometimes we have a problem with simple. Sometimes we can think that things are too simple. This is a story about a, a cake company here. It says, a leading manufacturer company developed a new cake mix that required only water to be added. Tests were run, surveys were made. The cake mix was found to be of superior quality to the other mixes available. It tasted good. It was easy to use. It made a moist, tender cake. The company spent large sums of money on an advertising campaign and they released the cake mix to the general market. But few people bought the new cake mix. The company then spent more money on a survey to find out why the cake mix didn't sell. Because of the results of this survey, the company recalled the mix, reworked the formula, and then released the revised cake mix. The new cake mix required that one add not only water, but also an egg. And it sold like hotcakes and is now a leading product in the field. See, the thing was, that first cake mix was just too simple to use, and people assumed that it was of poor quality or it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't any good because it was so simple. And sometimes it's salvation by grace is thought of, by, thought of as in the same way. 
It is so simple to receive that free gift of God. But we think, no, we have to, we have to add something, right? Like they wanted to add the A. We have to, we have to do something, right? If I, if I don't read my Bible enough, I don't come to church enough, if I don't feel guilty enough when I mess up, we always want to add something to it. But the truth is, salvation is simple. And we find that God is always there. The perfect gentleman, always waiting. He comes to the door and he knocks. But he never walks in. He has to be invited in. He's not going to bust your door down. He's not going to, to twist your arm. But I thank God that he never grows tired. Even as we resist, even as people push away, he never grows tired. They never look out the people and see him giving up and walking away. But he's always there waiting. His love is extended to all of us if we'll only open the door. Amen? Praise God. Let's go ahead and, uh, and bow our heads.